listening to Resist and Restore, a podcast from the Circle of Hope Pastors, where we're extending the table of our dialogue. I'm Johnny Rashid. I use he, him pronouns. I'm Rachel Sensenig. She, her. Julie Hoke. She, her. Ben White. He, him. Hey, friends. I am excited about this episode for multiple reasons, not least of which we're recording the day after Election Day in the, in the country, and, and, and I, I got to interview my friend Nora Liktash, part of the Development Without Displacement um, Coalition that I'm part of. We were talking about the need for affordable housing in Philadelphia, and there's a moment, we, we recorded this part yesterday, it was during the Election Day, and we didn't know how the election would turn out, and there was a very small ballot question about um, it was a ballot measure to change the charter so that money would permanently go into the affordable housing um, housing trust fund in Philadelphia. Point five. Which you've been like working on creating for a decade. You've been yeah, part of a coalition to do that, and we have a compassion team that you lead to do that. Exactly. So we had this housing trust fund, right? Um, and this measure passed. So during Ooh. the interview, we didn't know, but now we can actually celebrate. So that's something that you should know going into listening to the conversation between Nora and I. But for now, we're going to do some talk back and hear back from our community and respond. And Julie's going to lead us in that. Actually, Rachel's going to lead us. <laughs> Rachel's going to lead us in that. <laughs> and first of all, I have to say that Nora is awesome. Can't wait to listen to that interview. Um, I, I'm thinking about Sunday was Halloween uh, when we had our Sunday meetings. All um, Hallows' Eve. Yes, yes. And um, we did lots of cool things in our meetings and our, our at-home meeting. Um, and one of, one of the things that I'm remembering is my friend Mabel speaking in Talkback about how she went to see The Phantom of the Opera this weekend, kind of in honor of Halloween, I guess the Kimmel Center, they were performing it at the Kimmel Center and, you know, the Phantom was playing that giant cool organ. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, like as part of the show, the yes. Phantom was playing it. So wait, the person that plays the Phantom has to also know how to play the organ? I don't know. I don't know if he was faking or actually <laughs> yeah. playing the real thing. Anyway, she was just, she was, she was sharing how like complicated that story actually mm-hmm. is now that now that she's looking at it you know as a grown-up in 2021 um she realized wait may- maybe the phantom should be canceled this guy is like super problematic he he's like really truly creepy do you guys remember this I, story no not i yet, don't me, even not remember a ton either. I to like be honest a songs yeah haven't i could not tell you anything about it <laughs> <laughs> oh great great talk back rachel <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, I don't remember the whole story either, but I I know that um, he was, you know, he's super lonely and wants to be with Christine, the, you know, the female, female lead, lead. Yeah, and uh-huh. and he's like, he's like threatening to kill her, I think, if she doesn't like stay with him. Um, but Mabel hmm. was saying how she. You know, she was tempted to to like cancel the whole show, kind of in her mind and heart. And then she was re- realizing that she was identifying with the Phantom um, in in his loneliness and complicatedness, and wanted to kind of stick with the story and see where it where it went. And like she was hoping for his redemption, mm-hmm. as we all as we all do. 
Um, so it was, it, it was a word of hope to kind of stick, stick it out with each other in our, in the, in our, each of our complicated messes and the complicated mess of community, um, that there can be redemption for all of us. Please God. <laughs> yes. Please God. I wonder about that because I, I, we've been cataloging like old Disney movies now that we have Disney Plus and I'm watching like Beauty and the Beast and The Little Mermaid. And some of these movies have kind of typical misogynistic sexist tropes to them. And like I'm watching it with my kids and like it's definitely different than like Moana or Frozen where like you have these powerful mm-hmm. women leads that are doing different things. Mm-hmm. Like these other stories are like for some reason, everyone's parents are mean or dead, and they <laughs> need to find Everybody's mom is dead. <laughs> they need to find, true. like, a husband or something like that. But even within that, I still find some sentimental connection and good things to point to. Um, so that's, like, what I'm learning is that my sentimental, my sentimental connection doesn't need to be pure um, for me to enjoy something. But more than that, it's also my personal experience and it doesn't have to be broadcasted further than that. You know, like if my, if it was, if it didn't work for my kids because they didn't want to just be married to the guy in little mermaid, that would be fine too. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. like the, the, the personal connection matters, you know, I mean, I'm looking at this stat by 2011, 130 million people in 145 cities across 27 countries saw the Phantom of the Opera. That's a lot of people, you know, <laughs> Um, and there's a lot of capacity for <laughs> connection and sentimental connection to that. And I think that's, that's good. Mm-hmm. Well, but, but also like probably, uh, even more than that, uh, saw squid game last week, oh. mm-hmm. you know, like, which is, which is this, you know, ter- terrible show, which everyone's talking about. Um, I watched it all. Um, Me too. Because <laughs> everyone was watching it, but I think we're talking a bit about like how we're relating to media, which is a sen- which is which in twenty twenty one involves like cancellation and what you're supposed to be taking in and how you're supposed to be consuming it and giving and like kind of speaking back to the the media marketers and uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber, right? That's the mm-hmm. Phantom of the Opera. Like mm-hmm. he's he's just that a longer time ago, you know. Mm-hmm. So. I, my my thing with media, especially with my kids, and this is why I brought this up. And of course, I did not watch Squid Game with my children. <laughs> I regret watching it myself, but um, I couldn't stop watching it either. Did y'all wait? wait pause. Did you watch it in in dubbed or or uh, with su- subtitles, Johnny? I watched it dubbed, and the dubs were not. Oh, yeah, it was dubbed. It was not good. I I kept switching back to like important scenes because I wanted to um, hear how they said it in Korean, like to like kind of get the emotional content a little bit better cuz yeah the dubbing was did it matter like i yeah the characters are very different um uh when you listen to them in their native language oh wow <laughs> anyway i only watched the first one <clears throat> in oh, that was subtitles. enough you, you know how to stop you know <laughs> <laughs> okay wait i'm sorry this isn't about squid game this is about the fan of the opera and also about talking back to media mm-hmm. and having like having a relationship like Johnny you said my experience doesn't have to be pure is that is that what you said I can appreciate something um even if it is not pure yeah um I uh 
I want to keep talking back and like just I just have lots of asides when we're when we're watching a show or when we're reading an old book which you know inevitably has racism in it or something like that um just pause and say like you know this is really racist <laughs> like and you understand why right like before we move on like let's 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 let, like unpack this a little bit and i think it's like and for me it's kind of like a a constantly flowing stream i'm not going to like make a big deal and throw everything out i'm just going to continue talking back to the culture and these pieces of media that people are giving me mhm mhm i tried to really encourage that with my kids too I'm remembering more about the Phantom of the Opera story, too, as we go along here, and and why he's so relatable, this character is so relatable, even in his problems. Um, his He's disfigured, and so he hides, like, in shame. His face is disfigured, and so he becomes kind of this monster, like, recluse, and... Um, the love of somebody else, of course, of this character, Christine, kind of saves him from staying a monster. I think it often takes that to pull someone out of that isolation. They, they, they're, they're not just going to get better by themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel that. Well, let's have a church then. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> Keep talking back to us at Resist and Restore Podcast at circleofhope.net. We definitely want to hear from you. And if you email us or write us, we'll definitely get you on the show. Thanks again. So glad you're listening to our podcast. I love connecting with you. We all do. We want to keep extending the table of our dialogue and including you in our community. Again, you can write us at the email we just said, resist and restore podcast at circleofhope.net. And there are other ways that you can connect with us too. Go to circleofhope.church to find a Sunday meeting to worship in, and then also find a cell, one of the circles of 10 that meets in at someone's house in a hybrid situation, and some are still online, too. There's a lot of ways that you can connect with the basics of our community that way. And if you want to share money with us, go to circleofhope.church, and there's a place to give. It'll keep this show going and everything else that we do in Circle of Hope, which you can learn more about on our website. And finally, give us a high rating wherever you listen to this podcast, subscribe to it, and share it with someone that you think might be blessed by it. We want more people to experience the show that would if it would help them so you can help us do do that by reviewing it sharing it and subscribing thanks again hey friends i'm so excited to have my friend nora liktash here with me nora and i have been working together on affordable housing for over a decade so she has been inspiring to me and important to me, and I'm so glad that you'll get to know her and meet her. Nora, will you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, and thanks for asking me to do this, Johnny. I really appreciate the community that we're a part of. So um, I'm the director of the Women's Community Revitalization Project, meaning I'm the boss, but I also take out the trash. And the Women's Community Revitalization Project does kind of three main things. We build affordable housing and other buildings like childcare centers, healthcare centers that matter to families who need services and homes. And um, we build and support the tenants who live in those homes 
to um, move on to whatever their self-defined goals are, but often it's about making more money. And once they have a home, they can do that for their families. And then the third thing is we build and support leadership of folks that we've met through Circle of Hope and in communities to um, speak what they know, speak the truth, tell their stories, combine their stories with data that really show that they're not alone in Mm, pushing mm. politicians and electeds to do what's fair, and then to come up with solutions, because those of us on the ground often know the solutions better than any person in a university or any elected official who may not no longer be on the Mm -hmm. ground. Totally, totally. So the organization I work for has been around for about 35 years. It was started in North Philly, close to one of the Circle of Hope Churches Mm -hmm. um, congregations by a group of women who live, work, and worship in that neighborhood. And within that time, we've built more than 300 homes, and we've been part of coalitions with incredible partners like Circle of Hope. I am so glad for the work WCRP does. Um, It inspires me quite a bit, and I'm glad to be a part of it. We also serve on the Philadelphia Coalition for Affordable Communities, or PCAC, together. Can you tell us about that coalition and what we're trying to achieve on it? Sure. The coalition is a combination of all kinds of groups, more than 70 organizations, faith, community, labor, disability rights, food justice activists, um, pretty diverse and really strong and represents probably almost 100,000 people in Philly when you get done. And there's nothing like people power of people coming together to push for what we know is fair because lots of times we need to push. So the coalition has been around for a while and done a number of things related to affordable housing and food justice. But what we need for both of those issues is money to make things affordable and land on which to grow and build things. So the affordable housing piece is the one that my organization focuses on, but we love being in coalition with other groups because it gives us so much power. Um, We're currently in the middle of a food justice campaign, and I can talk more about that anytime you want me to. But we've really been part of creating institutions in the city that were not there, except for the fact that folks came together to fight for them. One was the, the Housing Trust Fund, which creates and preserves affordable housing in our city. And the other was the Land Bank, which currently doesn't work so well, but has a lot of potential. And that's why we're doing the food on the land justice campaign. Can you talk a little bit more about the impact of that? So we did this work over the last two decades, um, and these are meaningful institutions that we helped build that have changed the housing landscape in Philadelphia. Can you say more about that? I want the audience to know essentially how big of a deal this work is. Yeah, we do feel proud of this work because The truth is that the issues that get attention are often issues that um, I'll say richer people and whiter people uh, think are important. And that's who they speak to their elected officials about. But there are issues of poverty in our city that are really, really important to every single resident in our city because it requires resources. And so we've taken a look and tried to do some real research, both by listening to people in communities. People in communities are upfront and are the leaders in a lot of this work, but also by studying the data. Because lots of times people don't have clear and honest information about what we've actually done. So in our city, 
there are about 130,000 households that need affordable housing in a city of, you know, not that much more than a million people. It's substantial. We also know that more than one out of every four families in Philadelphia earns less than $26,000. And so the nature of having to buy or rent a home when your income is that low is really hard. So what we did was do a lot of research about what resources were needed and what resources were out there. And we figured out a way to get the private sector to pay for a lot of this, not just our government money, but the private sector. So the Housing Trust Fund was one in 2005, and it does it focuses on things like home repairs for people who own their homes but can't afford it, on making homes accessible for people in wheelchairs who can't get into their houses without mm-hmm. a lot of problems. It focuses on creating new home ownership units, new rental units, homelessness prevention, a lot of really good stuff. So every single year since 2005, there's been new millions of dollars, somewhere between nine and $14 million every single year going into create awesome. and preserving affordable housing. So I love that you say that it has impact because we believe it does. And today in Philadelphia, it's election day. Um, I know that the audience will hear this after election day, but there's a there's a ballot question about f- funding affordable housing permanently. In other words, putting money into the affordable housing uh, and to, to the housing trust fund permanently. Can you tell us about why this is so important to have it structurally as part of our budget? Sure. Circle of Hope and all the groups that were part of our coalition really fought very hard to have new resources come into the housing trust fund, especially private resources. We fought for a construction impact tax, which was later passed. That's but right. Our city has also committed some of our own tax dollars, your money, my money that we pay every year to the city, every time paycheck. And the city has not been true to those promises. They've promised and they haven't done it or they've tried to take it back. And so every single year we've had to fight that they've made a commitment to make sure they put that money in. And so we realized there needed to be a law that required them to put that money in because many, many cities around the country put tax dollars into affordable housing and Philadelphia with so many problems should too. So we were able through our organizing work and through a really great champion on city council, Derek Green, to get legislation passed in city council that every single year, 0.5% of the city's general fund budget would go into the housing trust fund, which would add to that between nine and 14 million every year, it would add an additional 25 million every wow. year. So it's a tiny, tiny, tiny piece of the billions that come into our city, but it could make a real impact. City council passed it. And today, if voters vote yes on ballot question four, the city's charter will be changed to mandate that the city put 0.5% of the general fund budget, unless there's an emergency into the housing trust fund. So we feel very hopeful that that ballot initiative will pass. And when you hear this, I hope we're celebrating. I hope so too. I hope so too. The second one you mentioned that the other campaign we're working on, Nora, is the land justice campaign, which we say we want to put land back in community hands. What's the goal of this campaign and how how, how are we going to achieve it? Yes, it's exactly what you're saying. Um, Right now, the city owns more than 5,000 parcels of surplus vacant land in neighborhoods all over the city. And in the last five years, they have given out only 700 of those parcels in five years. With all of the increasing 
prices in our neighborhood for rental and home ownership, they've only given out 700. And most of those 700 have been given out to market rate developers that build what they call market rate units, which are very expensive, but also they call workforce affordability, which is not affordable to anyone we know. They're selling homes mm-hmm. for $230,000 and they call that affordable. So we've done that research together in our coalition and identified some solutions. We want to change the disposition policies at the city to just create parity. They'll still give out resources, land that we own as a city for for market rate housing. But we want to ensure that they give out some of that land to create affordable food and affordable homes. That's right. And one problem with affordability, we need affordability. But one problem is there's usually a period at which that affordability goes away and it goes back to market. They call it a compliance period. And so we're fighting in our legislation to ensure permanent affordability, long-term affordability. So it seems like a long time, 15 years or 10 years, but at the end of that time, there are still folks in our communities that need affordability. And so we want there to be a restriction through a community land trust to ensure that this land stays affordable for at least 99 years with an option to renew. In addition, folks in communities very rarely have any input into what land that's government owned, publicly held, is used for in their neighborhood. Unless there needs to be a zoning variance, they have no opportunity to provide their input. And so part of of what we're fighting for is not just for permanent affordability to getting land in community hands, but to making sure that community has input in deciding what's needed in their neighborhood as well as what's feasible. That's right. That's beautiful. So for me as a Christian, I often say I'm into affordable housing and green space, affordable, accessible housing and green space, because I take Jesus seriously when he says to love our neighbors. I think that he actually meant that. And so that motivates Circle of Hope and our compassion team connected to the coalition to do this work. If I were to ask you why affordable housing in Philadelphia is, um, is, is important for you, how would you respond? Well, it's so interesting because I get chills whenever you say that. And I come mm-hmm. from a Jewish family, part Jewish and part agnostic. But I think part of my Judaism about always being taught that we have responsibility and that our ideas and our fights live on after we die and the folks who come after us and are inspired by the work that we've done. So, you know, people call it tikkun alam, healing the world, but I come from a family where people just take that so seriously. And it's not like it's about doing for others. It's nothing about charity. It's about we're all in this together and it's only through community and solidarity that we can make changes. And that it's, I don't know, it just gives me, it makes me feel brave when people around me are brave, makes me feel braver. And there's just something That's that's so beautiful about that. Let's talk about how Philadelphia has changed over really over the last 20 years, right? It's grown in population. It's developed further. A lot of different people are moving in. And so cities all over the country like Philadelphia are, uh, are developing and are growing. How big of a problem is gentrification in Philly? Are people really being pushed around? Are they not able to stay in their neighborhoods? Yes. And, you know, the, the word gentrification is... It's a strong one, but I think what's happening is that we want to welcome, and we know what it feels like not to be welcomed. Do we want to welcome all new residents? 
but we also want to ensure that long-term residents and folks who have been using the land or Philadelphia residents do not get displaced. So I think the real downside is the displacement that is being caused by market increases, especially when those market increases are skyrocketing. People can't afford to keep their homes because they can't repair them and people will buy your house for cash. Their kids can't buy in the neighborhood where they've always lived. Especially right now, right? It's really expensive to buy right now. Yes. So we have data that show in Northwest and South Philly, 33% of the African-American households have been displaced since 2000. So neighborhoods like Point Breeze, many neighbors that were traditionally people of color, the census data only gives you certain ethnic and racial breakdowns, but we have data that shows that people have been pushed out and we have so many stories of people not being able to keep their homes, not being able to keep their neighborhoods strong, not being able to keep food producing land because it's being gobbled up by development, by market rate development. And the open space that you talked about, as well as the accessible, affordable homes, it's not just about food. It's about people getting together, working together, just really having a chance to be part of a community. And so we think that the government has a responsibility, just like attracting new tax dollars, welcoming new people, also to the long-term residents to make sure that we get to keep our community strong. Absolutely. So- an argument I hear sometimes from very uh, market-forward people is to make housing affordable, we simply need to build more housing. And they're talking about market-rate housing. They think if the housing supply increases, then the cost of housing will lower. Why is a uh, supply-side approach to this not adequate to mm-hmm. making homes affordable and permanently affordable? Well, certainly um, permanent affordability is something we can talk about in a minute. You know, the only thing that makes homes permanently affordable is some kind of deed restriction or community owning land and ensuring that it stays affordable. But um, in order to build a house in Philadelphia, it doesn't cost us really much less than it costs to build a house in New York City. But in Philly, the market is entirely different. I'm not saying there aren't poor folks in New York, but in Philly, So many of our sisters and brothers in the city have incomes where they may be earning minimum wage or less. And people are really struggling and it's a lot worse with COVID. So in order for people to be able to afford a house, a builder needs to build the house and then be able to get enough rent to pay the taxes, to repair the roof. And that requires what I'm calling subsidy, but some free money coming in to ensure that. And so that means our tax dollars that we care about should be going to things that help all Philadelphians. So if we're paying for a shelter or if we're paying, you know, our tax dollars for kids being taken away because their parents don't have adequate housing, we're using our tax dollars in a bad way. We should be using our tax dollars to ensure that more people have affordable housing. And there should be private dollars coming into this, foundations, of course, but people who are making resources, making a huge profit from building housing should also need to pay their fair share. And so we focus on both of those, tax dollars as well as private resources coming in to create rental housing, home ownership housing. I mean, I can give you a quick example if it's useful. Should I? Let's hear it. Yeah, let's hear it. So in Point Breeze, where the organization I work for, the Women's Community Revitalization Project, or WCRP, is building rental housing, we also ended up 
building five home ownership homes. And it costs us about 300,000 to build those homes. When you pay for the architect and all of the, what we call soft costs, as well as the bricks and mortar and labor, hard costs, it costs roughly 300,000. The houses across the street are being sold for 500 to 600,000, a lot of money. Maybe our houses aren't quite so nice as theirs, but it roughly costs that developer a lot less than he's charging for those houses. But we know that people in the neighborhood could afford a house for 150,000. So we raised subsidy dollars, free money for 150. So we're selling those houses for 150. They're part of the community land trust. So they are gonna stay, stay affordable even if those families end up selling them. They can leave them to their heirs, but if they, do sell them, they get a fair return on their equity, but they can't make what I'll call a killing. I don't know if that's the right word, but they can't just because their neighborhood is increasing, make so much more money. So that's kind of the example. Does any of our work, and I hear this from developers, they they howl and protest often when we talk about like the construction impact fee. I remember, I remember the resistance to that. Does Charging a fee or collecting money from private developers discourage development in Philadelphia? They say it does, but to, to me, from what I'm observing, it doesn't. Yeah, it's a very important issue. And we can never be fighting for things that um, don't have true research or backup. So we did a lot of research on what I never heard this term before, but economists call an elasticity rate to make sure the tax or fee that we were charging would not slow down development. So it depends on what's currently happening and what's projected for the future. But economists, we pay researchers to do their research and to find out good, hard data. And we include that when we go to speak to the elected officials, when we go to speak to the Building Industry Association. So sometimes developers are right when people are asking for things that are that will hurt them and it will keep them from being able to develop. But we at the Philadelphia Coalition for Affordable Communities, PCAC, have done our homework and we have never done that. And so we do not want to slow down development. We do not want to slow down getting new taxes to our city. We're very clear that those things are important, but what's also important is fairness or what some people are calling equitable development now. We need to be fair. And I know that's core to your religion, to my that's religion, right. but it's care, it's it's part of humanism. It's part of any human being should be thinking about not just what they or their family needs, but what all families need. Thanks for that. How how do you how do we talk to our neighbors who um, may resist? new development or even may resist affordable development in their neighborhoods? What's the what's the best way to approach them? Oh, if I had that answer, I would be a, a pastor. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think that building relationships of trust takes time. And especially across lines of class, race, ethnicity, gender, all the, all the totally, things, totally. ways that we're different. And so I just... In my experience, listening and kind of responding in a way where you stay really open is the core of organizing and is the core of any kind of change. So those one-on-one relationships, family-to-family relationships, I mean, people have deeply held beliefs for many good reasons and sometimes for reasons that they're not so aware of or I'm not so aware of. So I think it just, it can take um, different kinds of people 
to working with different kinds of people and that that kind of neighborhood listening. I don't know, but in my experience in my neighborhood, I live in Germantown, a lot of people were worried about gentrification when it was happening in Fishtown or North Philly sure, sure. or South Philly. And I was thinking, Germantown, I've lived here 50 years. I don't think Germantown's going to change. Well, Germantown is starting to change. <laughs> so I think part of it is realizing it could be affecting you and your family. Totally. Part of it is realizing that a good neighbor who is a renter can be equally or a better good neighborhood neighbor than a homeowner, depending. You know, I just think it's getting beyond our biases of thinking that people who have less money or a different color skin or a different practice in terms of religion are not as close to God or goodness as we are. Mm -hmm. So I think that the relational piece is really important. I know that we have a lot of other obstacles that are bigger than our relationships. And one way we overcome them is by building power in communities and by organizing. Can you talk about what does it look like to demonstrate to city council and these other forces that, that we have, um, we have the numbers, as we say, there's, we have, we have people on our side. There is, there is power that we're holding. How, how do we build that? How do we demonstrate that? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I come from a family where organizing is really important, but a lot of the organizing you know, I'm 70 from the early days was union organizing, making sure that the boss couldn't just fire us and that we had right. the workplaces. But also my parents were pretty involved in anti-war organizing, first the Korean War, then Vietnam. And the idea of neighborhood or community organizing was not something I was that familiar with. But since I've been involved with groups like Circle of Hope and other groups in the idea that coalitions need to be built among organizations that have constituencies and have leaders, that together we can show up and show out and speak up That's and right. speak out. It's been incredible. So community organizing first, just like with the research we talked about with the elasticity rate of development, you need to do your homework and really understand how does city council work? What does each elected official do? What does a committee person do? A ward leader, council person, council member, the mayor, like what do these folks do and what power do they have? Because in organizing your you're always thinking about what is our goal and what do we want and who has the power to give us what we want and then what power do we have over them. So at election time with elected officials, that's a really good time to speak up. But if be, between elections, if you know who campaign donors are or what people have voted for before or what they care about mm -hmm. or what they're afraid of, the whole point of organizing is to get more and more allies that That's can right. give you what you want. So someone may become a target, but the goal is to turn them into an ally. It's not to fight them or demonize them or make them wrong. That your actions very often, which are called tactics, move start very much in the middle with quiet or thoughtful or simple tactics that don't embarrass anyone, but move farther and farther to what I call the left, which I think of as positive, but stronger and stronger tactics to tell, help people see that they have self-interest, elected officials, in doing what the masses of their constituents mm -hmm. would like. Through coalition work, we add numbers. So we come out every, the first day of council, we've been coming out for 
as long as we've been working together to show the council people That's what right. we stand for, not to show them they're wrong, but that we have good ideas and that some of them may want to listen and become our champions. We're very fortunate in the land justice campaign to have a champion, and that's Jamie Gautier. She's a council member in West Philly, a district council member, and she has so much integrity. Oh, my God, I love working with her. She's great. And she intends to introduce legislation, but before that will help us get land to put in community hands, as Johnny was saying. And so before she does that, she needs to work with her sisters and brothers on council to make sure they're co-sponsors, they understand this, because just because legislation is introduced does not mean it will pass. That's right. There's a difference then between activism and uh, being an ideologue and being real practical about what we can accomplish. I have high ideals. I'm very idealistic. Um, When do you con- when, when what what happens when you're faced with a moment you have a a piece of legislation where you need to make compromises that 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 are practical um, to get it passed? I mean, how do you prepare your heart for that, and how do you celebrate a win and not simply point out um, kind of the holes in the Swiss cheese, if you will? Well, I don't know if this comes from being seventy, but I really do think, and I've seen it in very young people, that understanding that. Every campaign is about the arc of justice. (laughs) You know, it's about the future too. And it's about preparing our leaders and ourselves as leaders to be ready for the next campaign and that the next campaign. So that's whether you really do not win or you, you never win every single thing that you want. So in terms of preparing your heart, I mean, I think it is about remembering that it is part of a bigger picture. But for me, there's always the sadness of not getting exactly what we want. I mean, we see it in Building Back Better right now for climate activists and for others. But I think focusing on the fact that we did not have this before and what we have is a stepping stone and it can be a really, really valuable, important stepping stone. And then we look at the leadership that was built and what were the clear successes based on our goals, because our goals were not just winning a campaign goal of more money or more land. The goal is also how did people progress or mature or build their own ability to understand things during this campaign and really celebrate that and celebrate those folks. Excellent. Well, thanks for that. And thanks for your inspiration and your leadership, Nora. I'm uh, indebted to you for it. Um, How can we stay in touch with PCAC and WCRP? How do we keep up with what's going on? Sure. So WCRP has a website. If you, It's a long name, but Women's Community Revitalization Project and the Philadelphia Coalition for Affordable Communities also has a website and it's pretty interactive and has a lot of stuff on it. So if you just Google those things, um, there's a lot of like hashtags and other things, which I don't always remember. But I think if you look them up, you can get in touch with us. If you know Circle of Hope, if you know me, call me up anytime. <laughs> you sure. know, and- yeah, we're we're ready. We want and welcome new members or new folks who are just thinking about these issues because your take on it can really influence what we do and can help us be so much stronger together. I don't know, my email is nlictash, and you can see it on the screen at wcrpphila.org. So you might be able to get that from Johnny. If you have any questions or things that don't make sense or where you think I'm wrong, email me. I'm glad to stay in touch. Yeah, we gl- we'd be glad to hear from you all too. Email us at resistandrestorepodcast.circleofhope.net. We'll be sure to put all those 
links in our show notes. Thanks again for having this conversation, Nora. Thank you. I love being a compatriot and a comrade with you. Thank you so much, Johnny. Me too, Nora. (laughs) Bye. This last section is spiritual show and tell. We like to share what is nourishing to our souls, hoping that it nourishes you also, or at least gets you thinking about what nourishes your own soul. Um, so, pastors, what do you have to share this week? It was All Saints Day, so I was looking for saints to share with our Sunday meeting. We had like a, an All Hallows Eve party. Um, the kids dressed up, and we painted pumpkins, and we also shared stories of the ancestors. And uh, I was looking for a short, like, I, I, I was like doing a YouTube search, like, okay, because I wanted to find like a short little video, you know, like a three or four minute video that kind of explained a person uh, of faith. And um, it was harder than I thought. Like there were a bunch of cartoons that were stupid and uh, a lot that was too long. You know, there, there was some good stuff out there, but it was like 11 minutes or even like 25 minutes, like a whole TV show episode. But I finally found this little um, video about George Washington Carver, um, who I, of course, knew essentially as uh, a person that we remember during Black History Month. Like, you got to know all the inventors that are black because they got, you know, swept under the rug. And you got to at least know that George Washington Carver was a botanist and, you know, uh, really did cool stuff with peanuts. (laughs) And changed changed agriculture in the South. Like, you know, I I knew, like, the Jeopardy answers about George Washington Carver. Like, that's all I really knew about him. But he was a total mystic. Like, in the sense, like, like George McDonald-level mystic, guys. (laughs) Oh, wow. No. A new new friend. (laughs) Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. I love finding friends in the past. And, you know, he, one of the, one of, um, there's this children's book by him, about him by Aliki, who, who writes a lot of really good children's books. Side note, she is the daughter of the Leah Coors from the Leah Coors Center at Temple University. She's related to that family. Hmm. That's not what I'm talking about, though. I'm talking about the, the, the book that she wrote is called A, a Weed is a Flower. And that's Ooh. something that George Washington, or George Washington Carver said. So, like, yes. let me say that again. A weed is a flower. And you're like, oh, that's Ben's vibe, you know? <laughs> But also, you know, he said in this video, which I'll share this like short little video from this, uh, this, you know, it, it's kind of a low tech video too. Um, and I, but I just love that he like opened me up. Like I'm Googling, you know, best George Washington Carver biographies. But I also want, I, I want to know about his faith because he's this Orthodox Christian, Orthodox in the sense like he's, um, you know, dedicated to the Bible and, and like maybe like the Apostles Creed or something like that. But then also just very like, nature mystical like you can you can meet god in creation and you can talk to the trees kind of stuff (laughs) you know and uh i don't know there's probably there's a lot more to it i don't know enough but i'm smitten with george washington carver he's my new historical christian crush and i'm gonna read a biography (laughs) about him but but if you know a good george washington carver biography please send it to me Mm -hmm. because I'm, i'm trying to decide I want I want like a big thick one, but I also want one that is very sensitive to his faith and won't won't um, kind of edit that out because he's kind of a scientist and and you could you could see it from this kind of scientific economic perspective because he had a big impact in that way even like an educational perspective. But I want to hear about his uh, his spirituality a lot too. So help me out. 
So good. Speaking of creation, I got to chaperone uh, a little trip to the Rockies um, this past (laughs) weekend. And uh, it was just uh, amazing. I love the mountains, and I've seen the Rockies before, but the the joy, the height of my joy really was getting to go with my daughter and two of her friends, um, and, you know, for one of them was turning 18, and to see them seeing the Rockies, to see their joy at at experiencing the magnificence of these mountains was just, just filled my heart. Two things are nurturing my soul. Um, one of them is the vaccines for five to 11 year olds. I'm very excited to get my kids vaccinated. Yes. I already have appointments for them. I just got improved last night. So this <laughs> oh, is you already got, nice. you already got an appointment. <laughs> uh-huh. I, oh, I want that. The cool. Rashid's move it, baby. We're on it. I just got my my wife just texted me and said I got him appointments for tomorrow, so it's pretty good. Um, but then also, we're out of the spooky months, which I consider September and October, and we're into the Christmas months. <laughs> I so, knew that was coming. I am now listening to Christmas music, and I feel very good about it and ready. And Mariah carries with me. And she's a she's a saint too. So that's the energy you that like. I have. Like I love that you love Christmas music, but like you, we do not agree about what's the best Christmas music. I like it all. I mean, <laughs> I, like I sing Silent Night. Listen to me. I sing Silent Night to my children every night throughout the whole year. Wow. All and I I do three verses sometimes. You know. Um, and Hark the Herald Angels Sing is like the best song ever in, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. But then also, the pop Christmas candy style songs, I love them too. <laughs> so, you're right. My, my love is, is boundless for the, for, the, for the holiday, for the season. That's, that's a generous love. All I want for Christmas is you is the worst. <laughs> oh, I love it. Just, Why just is saying. it the worst? We, well, that's a whole other podcast. We don't Let's have, have time for this. <laughs> Talk back to us Go about ahead, why Julie. you don't like that song, y'all. But we're sharing what nurtures our soul. <laughs> so, on a totally different note, um, I read this book um, this past week called The Little Book of Conflict Transformation by John Paul Lederacht. And it, it nourished my soul because... Uh, he he has words and puts a framework to conflict in a way that I think is obviously really generative. The whole idea is um, conflict transformation. And he talks about, I mean, there's lots of things in it that were really helpful to me. I'm going to keep chewing on it for a long time. Uh, But one of the things he talks about at the beginning is just how no one lens is capable of bringing everything into focus. Um, We need multiple lenses to see different aspects of a complex reality. And conflicts are always complex. And there's different layers to what's going on. Um, And so it's really helpful, I think, to recognize that and be able to look at the immediate situation and see beyond the presenting um, problems for deeper things and and then have a framework 
to hold all of that together. So I appreciate all the folks out there who are leaders in restorative justice and conflict transformation and community accountability. And this book in particular was helpful to me this week. Mm. Well, I hope that you will share with us what's nurturing your soul. That's a good way to talk back to us. We could start our show next week by sharing something good that is um, nourishing to you. Uh, write to us at Resist and Restore Podcast at circleofhope.net. I think that's good enough. Oh, no, we have to react more than that. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Oh, I felt like I was she, waiting for, she just tied it up. I was waiting up. for someone else to say something. <laughs> she gave she the would, ending already. I'm so bad at this. <laughs> it's not bad. You said it beautifully. I, I just thought, okay, there it is. That's the end. I thought we might riff more on this idea of, um, like, reacting and and wanting to cancel the phantom it is interesting that that you know the musical's still playing people are still going to see this story it doesn't translate the same way in 2021 but obviously people are still buying tickets yeah yeah he's i mean he's so misogynistic and she kisses him at the end and that makes everything better (laughs) (laughs) something like that (laughs) Now I'm interested. I have to, I mean, I did see it a long time ago, but I kind of want to go back and look at the whole story again. Yeah. I mean, there's some great songs in there. We were talking about the music of the night. Uh, Just beautiful. Well, maybe if, maybe Laura can put that (laughs) chit chat back into the conversation. I don't know. (laughs) 